Well, good morning, Journey Church. How are we doing today? All right, good. You guys are alive and awake. I love it. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, dive into this series, Jesus, the Untold Story. And we're going to be talking today about the power of words. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Prout, and I'm the worship minister here. And I'm very thankful that Randy's given me the opportunity to speak here this morning to you all. It's a privilege and an honor. And before we go anywhere else, I'd like to just go to the feet of Jesus and just ask his help this morning as we move forward. Jesus, I am so thankful for this opportunity to speak here this morning. But I know that what we need is much more than what I have to offer. So God, I just ask that you would come and that you would inspire and you would direct my words and our thoughts, God, together. That you would build us up in you and your truth and everything that is about Dan Prout. God, I just pray that it would be quickly forgotten. That it would be quickly laid aside for everything that is about Jesus. So Lord, we thank you for who you are. And we just lift you up this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, have you ever noticed the power of our words? You know, the absolute world-shaping, life-framing power that words have. It's amazing to see how they impact us and, and the level to which they do. You know, and the Bible recognizes this in James 3, verses 3 through 5. Let's go there for a second. We're going to read through this. It says, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. You know, I love this verse because for me, it talks about all these incredible pictures, these awesome metaphors. You know, when I think about horses being controlled by a bit, I think about those huge Clydesdales, you know? Those horses that are like at least double the tall of, of a normal man, you know? And not just one, but teams of these are controlled by a single person. Or even more so, the size of giant ships that go ahead and sail across the sea carrying all sorts of cargo. And the uh, incredible power of the waves and the currents and the wind goes ahead and beats against that. But a skillful pilot, with the help of a rudder, can go ahead and steer that ship safely to port. You know, I think James uses both of these examples of industry and direction and purpose um, to make a statement to us that our words can be extremely constructive, that they can build the world that we share, the world that we have in our own hearts and lives, and the world that is in other people's lives as well. And I think that's why they matter so deeply to us, our words. Now, I, I have a story about that, honestly, that I want to share with you, and, and hopefully it'll be as funny to you as it was to me, but... Um, it's about me and my son, Boston. We were checking out at a register, and one of the ladies there was listening to us talk, and she just responded, your son's so cute. And um, if you have a six-year-old boy for a son, you know the bittersweet exchange that just occurred in his mind. Uh, he's, you know, begrudgingly thankful that someone noticed him, but, you know, at the same time, he doesn't want anyone to think that he's cute. That's the last thing on his mind. He's the boy that thinks of superheroes and epic battles, you know, so I encouraged him to say thank you, and he did, and kind of pouted his way out to the car while I chuckled as when I walked out as well. And I relayed the story to my wife, who was in the car waiting with us. And she went ahead and was encouraging him about, oh, that's so great. Someone you know, said, you're cute, that's awesome. And Boston had just had it. He couldn't handle it anymore. And he just growled from the back seat, I'm not cute, I'm ferocious. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> 
I'm sorry, we, we, we couldn't help ourselves either, and that didn't help the situation at all. Um, but I, I'm telling you, I, I relate to that. You know, I have my own idea about who I am, and I want the world to understand that idea. I want it to go ahead and fall in line. And when it doesn't, when people don't see me the way I see myself or see things the way I see them, it can bring about frustration, it can bring about anger, anxiety, and hurt, all sorts of things. You know, and that reminds me of another story. I was applying for my first job at a church. It was another church, and uh, I was meeting with some of the leaders, and they were asking me about, you know, my relationship status, what was going on, and I was actually dating a woman that was a part of that church, and she would become my wife, Leanne, and uh, she did a great job leading us in worship this morning along with the rest of the team. I am so thankful for them, uh, for all of them, but, you know, obviously most for my wife, Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, if you know Leanne, which many of you do, you know, she's a caring, passionate leader who acts on her convictions and speaks boldly the truth that she feels that she knows. And um, that's something I saw in her from the beginning. She's an awesome, awesome leader. And so when I shared with that with them, uh, they knew who she was. And one of the leaders actually responded in a way I wasn't expecting. And she, uh, well, the leader was surprised and basically said that she was a pistol. And, um, it you know, a lot of that is inflection. A lot of that is how is it meant, you know. But for me, I could tell it wasn't the way that I appreciated her the way that I wanted to. So for our purposes this morning, I actually even looked up pistol in the dictionary, and another definition of it is also natural leader. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were to be described as a pistol versus a natural leader, I know how I would feel about those two different things. You know, and I'm very thankful that my description of my future wife's gifting reflected her contribution to the body of Christ and didn't undermine it or suppress it. And so I think we can see how powerful our words are. But James, he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He, he gives us one last example. If we have any doubt in our minds, the incredible power that we wield when we speak. And he talks about the analogy of a spark that sets ablaze a wildfire. And we in America have just experienced the devastation that comes from a wildfire. They're just agents of chaos that indiscriminately destroy as they go through people's lives, you know, um, both materially and sometimes their very life, you know. So if words are so powerful in our understanding and building the world around us and how we perceive it, then how important is it for us to use the right words about Jesus? Eternity could actually hang in the balance if we get this wrong. And if that's actually the case, then Jesus is the most important person for us to describe in our entire life. The most important person. And Jesus knew this. He didn't leave us hanging. John records seven direct, seven direct I am statements that go ahead and tell us about who Jesus was. He told us himself. He went ahead and said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And so we're going to take a quick look and see these different statements and just dive into them a little bit and mine something out of them because I believe, honestly, folks, our ability to understand who Jesus is determines our ability to open ourselves to the tra- up to the transformation that he wants to accomplish in each one of us from death to life, from despair to hope. 
And so it's really important for us to grab this. So I'm going to try to run through these. Hang with me if you can, all right? So we're going to begin first with bread. Okay? So people expected the Messiah, when he came, to go ahead and bring about an age of abundance, that everything would be better and that things would just happen, like manna from heaven would just go ahead and fall before them, and that's what they expected to happen in their lives. Now, the problem was they couldn't go ahead and make the differentiation and see that it wasn't just the material that was going to come about. That the Messiah would be for the soul what bread was for the body. So we're going to read in John 6.35 what Jesus said. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You know, Jesus is telling us that he's the promised Messiah, and that he's come to go ahead and bring not abundant material possessions, but abundant life, all right? And so when we choose to fill ourselves with who, with who Jesus is, with what he has for us, we're going to always be completely satisfied. We're going to be satisfied to overflowing. But when we take what the world calls as satisfying and we try to fill ourselves, we're going to end up broken and empty, and we're going to end up breaking the people that we love around us as well. So I want to go ahead and encourage us to just remember that as we move on to the next statement of Jesus made, which is the light of the world. He made the statement that he is the light of the world. Now, there's a backdrop for this that we're going to dive into real quick, okay? It's the, festi- uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, all right? And that was a multi-day event where they celebrated how God had brought them through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So at night, what they would do is they'd take these huge candelabrums, fill them with oil, they'd raise them above the temple walls, and they'd light up the entire city of Jerusalem. Now there's one extra thing. They'd leave one candelabrum, the biggest one of them all, They'd leave it empty until the last night, and then they'd fill it and light it to go ahead and symbolize the light of the Messiah, his salvation that would be still coming. So in the light of all this, sorry, in, in, the, in the setting of all this, John 8, 12, it says, Jesus spoke again to the people, and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So in the midst of this lighting up of all of Jerusalem, Jesus said, I'm not just going to light up this city. I'm going to light up this world. I'm going to bring light in the midst of the darkness. And you get to go ahead and be part of that. You see, when Jesus is our light, he brings us out of the despair and hurt of a world and then gives us a direction and purpose to join with him in carrying that light to the lost, to the people who are in the midst of this broken world without any hope just lost in darkness. So his next statement was, I'm the gate. So you have to understand a little bit about shepherding to understand this. Um, When they were out shepherding on the hills, they didn't always come back to the farmstead. They would stay sometimes out on the hills, and so there was these small um, sheep folds that they would create, which were, you know, a few feet high, enough to keep the sheep in, keep them from running out, but there wasn't really a gate on those sheep folds. There was just a gateway a small space that could go ahead and let the sheep in. So the shepherd would work them in, and then he would lay down in that gateway so that no sheep could go ahead and come in or go out without first going over his body. Now, Jesus says in John 10, 7, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Y'all, Jesus is our gate. You know? 
And I don't care how dirty you are as a sheep. I don't care how you know, stinky or messed up you feel you are. He is laying down there and beckoning you to come in. And so you just need to remember that, that he is, he's there to be our, our provider of salvation, hope, and safety. And as we listen to his name and we go ahead and respond to him, he's going to go ahead and call us in. Just a little later on in that passage, Jesus calls himself the good. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm trying to move through a lot here really quickly. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, okay? So in the Old Testament, shepherd terminology was used a lot for God and his people. See, God was the provider. He was the caregiver. He was the leader for his people, the same way a shepherd leads a flock. Now, David actually wrote about this in Psalm 23. You remember that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he talks about how because God was his shepherd, he didn't have to fear when he went into the valley of the shadow of death. And how he had blessings and goodness following him all the days of his life. So what does Jesus say in John 11? He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now there are going to be moments in our life when we become paralyzed with fear in the face of the shadow of death. I don't know what that is. It could be the death of a career. It could be the death of a dream or a hope. Maybe it's the hope of you know, something that you wanted for your children or a family member. It could be the actual death of a family member. But just like David, we can have confidence that when we face that death, our Savior, our Good Shepherd, is going to be there to hold us, to protect us, to keep us, and move us through whatever valley we are facing. You know, what I love about Jesus' ministry is that he was always available for the desperate and the marginalized. We see that constantly. And so that I know and we know that in our desperate moments, Jesus is going to be there for us to hold us in his arms and keep us safe. Jesus went on to say he was the resurrection and the life. Now, there's a big debate going on during this time between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, okay? Uh, The Sadducees thought that life ended at death. Nothing else happened. But the Pharisees and Jesus believed that there was an afterlife, that we all went to heaven or to hell, that there was something that happened to us. Now, in the backdrop of all this, Jesus says in John 11, 25, and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You see, the life that we get in Jesus is a spiritual life that is so real and so abundant and exactly what God intended, so much so that it takes what was accomplished by the fall, our death, and it actually trumps it. It actually moves us past it. That spiritual life that can be stopped by nothing, not even physical death. And so he goes on to say a little bit further in uh, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay, so in this he's talking about being the way, the truth, and the life. All right? In the Old Testament, to go ahead and live a life that followed God's law meant to be living in the way. It was to live in, out the truth of God's life. Now, the problem was no one could walk in the way completely. No one could fully do that. That's why they provided the sacrificial system. That's why that existed, so that we could go ahead and remain in relationship with God. So Jesus knows this, and he says, I know you're broken and can't make yourself right with me. 
So I'm going to take it upon myself to walk perfectly and take your place so that you can take mine. Accepting Jesus' payment for our brokenness is how he became our only way of living out true salvation. So finally, we've made it to the seventh. Jesus called himself the vine. Vine imagery was a big thing in the Old Testament. And often it was talked about as people of Israel being the vine. Now, the point of that was that the vines bear fruit. And Israel was to bear fruit in the world. They were a holy people set apart to draw all the world to God. Now, the problem was they continually failed at doing that. They would be tempted by idols and other things that they would see other countries doing, and they'd just fall into that. So Jesus says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Jesus calls himself the true vine, that one that will bring forth the good fruit that Israel should have brought about. And as we believe in him, as we go ahead and enter into what he has for us, we become his branches and get to join with him in bringing about that good fruit in the world by sharing his light, his hope, his peace, and allowing others to go ahead and experience that. So all these truths, all these statements, all these claims give us a powerful understanding of the person of Jesus. These are all the direct I am statements that John records. Now there is a final statement that Jesus makes, a statement that really in a lot of ways culminates um, most all of the statements that Jesus made, and it's by far the grandest claim he's made. Now, Jesus made this statement in the midst of a heated debate between him and the religious leaders. All right, he was uh, talking to them, and they were challenging his teaching, and they wanted to go ahead and, and basically show that he wasn't who he thought he was, that he was religiously a liar and a degenerate. Then they were actually claiming that he was demon-possessed, so in the midst of this, Jesus responded by asking them for their proof, saying that if they had really been following God, they'd know that he wasn't possessed by a demon. And the religious leaders simply fired back again with the same claim that he was demon-possessed. So in John 8, 49 through 59, we read Jesus' response to them. He says, I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, who you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, they said, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him. Who is Jesus claiming to be? I am? I am blank? No, he's just claiming I am. So it either takes, <laughs> it really doesn't take someone to have an advanced science degree or literature degree to go ahead and realize that Jesus is either very poor with grammar or he's actually saying something extremely significant here. 
Jesus was saying something that he knew the people listening to him would understand. And they did understand him perfectly. In fact, he was quoting the Old Testament out of Exodus. He was quoting Moses' exchange with God at the burning bush. You see, God himself was speaking to Moses and telling him to go to the highest authority in all the land, Pharaoh, and tell him to release all of his slaves, God's people. And in the midst of that, Moses was understandably a little frightful, and so he asked God for some credibility. He asked God, what is your name, your true name, so that I can tell the people who it is that sent me? So God responds to Moses in Exodus 3.14 and says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You see, the phrase I am is considered the most holy word in all of existence by the Jews and by all people who are believers. They wouldn't even write the consonants Y A. Uh, they wouldn't even write the vowels, excuse me. They would only write the consonants Y H W H. And the best that we can make out is that it actually sounded something like Yahweh. I am. See, Jesus claimed the name of God for himself. If Jesus was speaking today, it would sound something like this. You want to know who I am? I'll tell you. I'm God in human form. And you see, the people that heard him understood him perfectly. And we know that because they picked up stones to begin to stone him for blasphemy. So let's suspend belief for a moment so that we can just really let this claim sink in, okay? before we judge the religious leaders too extremely harshly. This is a man who walked the earth and yet claimed to be God. All right, This is a claim that Jesus makes alone amongst all major religions or religious figures. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius. None of those people claimed to go ahead and be God in human form. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, come to earth. Which means he's forcing them and us, to make a decision. Go with me on this for a second. Let's say that we're trying to get to know each other a little bit better. We've just met, and we decide to go have some coffee at Starbucks. So we sit down, and we begin to have a conversation. You say, hey, Dan, help me out a little bit. I'd like to know a little bit about who you are, about what you're doing. You know, tell me something about yourself. And I respond, well, I'm God in human form. And you? <laughs> Where do you go with that? There's not many places you can go with an answer like that. You could rightly assume that I'm a lunatic, that I'm completely mad and I just don't know it. You know, honestly, that wouldn't be too far out of the realm of possibility. But does that work with Jesus? You see, the problem with that is that no one is insane, severely mentally ill, without having a history of mental illness in their life. And all the historical record, the information we have about Jesus, shows no major signs of classical mental illness of any kind. No inability to relate to the real world, no inadequacy in personal relationships or deficiencies in verbal skills. In fact, noted psychiatrist Dr. J.T. Fisher concluded that if you were to survey all the psychological data which his discipline had to offer and boil it down to one essential and perfect prescription for mental health, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. The most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached is the perfect prescription for mental health, and yet somehow this man is insane. That goes beyond being possible. It's not just improbable, it's, it's just completely impossible to go ahead and logically accept that Jesus was insane and yet could provide that to us. So 
you look at me in the coffee shop and you say, Dan's not insane. He talks normal, he acts normal, he looks normal most of the time. So you think, I must be working an angle. I have to be lying to you. I'm trying to get you to join some kind of cult, or I'm trying to get something from you. I'm preying on the weak and the vulnerable and the gullible. Yeah, basically, I'm just a horrible person uh, at that point uh, that I'm, I'm going ahead and, and trying to pull this out of you, this claim that I'm God. But, but does that work when we talk about Jesus? Because when we look at Jesus' life, his teachings about integrity and honesty have become the bedrock of our moral understanding in the civilized world. So somehow, the person who created that was a habitual, premeditated, pathological liar. That doesn't make any sense. And then we remember that Jesus was mocked, beaten, and he was tortured prior to his execution. And that Pilate, when he talked to him, gave him every opportunity, if he just renounced his claim to be God, to go ahead and walk away completely free. Yeah, I'm sorry, but if any con man had an opportunity to go ahead and get out of something scot-free without going ahead and having their, a nail driven through their hand, they absolutely would. They absolutely would. You see, liars only lie until their deception costs them more than it gained them. And Jesus endured it all. What reason would he have for that? Not just Jesus. All the disciples endured it all as well. Each one of them saw him walk on water, raise the dead, feed the 5,000. They saw his resurrection. They saw him face to face after his own death. And when given the opportunity to go ahead and choose life over death, all of them chose death rather than renounce that Jesus was God. So what else can you make of that statement? Well, you could say that Jesus was just a good man. Even a prophet. Just not who he claimed to be. But that's the problem. That's the one thing you can't say. Listen to C.S. Lewis, uh, who wrote about this. He was a brilliant intellect who served as a professor at both Oxford and Cambridge. You know you're smart when you do something like that. All right? And this was his assessment of our Starbucks conversation as it applies to Jesus. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing that you cannot say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing noise about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So there you have it. The seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And just one more. Just I am. The great I am. Yahweh, God himself. If you're exploring the Christian faith... The heart of that exploration lies in the person of Jesus. Everything about our faith rises and falls on the person of Jesus, his identity. 
Now you have to decide whether or not to believe that he is who he claimed to be. I think that choice is clear. And if you haven't made that choice, I'm going to give you a chance to make that choice this morning as we get ready to move into communion. Me and Randy are going to be up here at the front, and I'm going to tell you we would love to have a conversation with you about that. I can't think of a better time than communion to go ahead and make that choice. If you're a believer and you're getting ready to come to communion, then I want to encourage you to just look at Jesus for, for all that he is this morning. Let him broaden your eyes, see him clearly as much as we can, because that is going to grow and grow as we move through this life, and we can always allow ourselves to be stretched in that area. But as we do become stretched, we're going to see more and more of his glory, more and more of the victory that he offers to us. And I just encourage you to go ahead and come with open hearts and minds to see your Savior and to remember him. Would you pray with me as we get ready for communion? God, we are so thankful for how it is that you work and move in us. And Lord, we just ask that as we take this time to remember you, that you would just fill our hearts in this moment, that everything else would just fade away and that we would focus in on your love, on the length that you went to go ahead and make a life and relationship with you possible, to give us real hope and real peace and real joy. Lord, that you gave your own body, allowed it to be broken for us, though you had every chance not to that you allowed your blood to be shed for us for the forgiveness of sin and healing of our hearts and lives. Thank you, Jesus, for that. As we come this morning, we come to remember you. God, be the center of our hearts and our minds in this time. And Lord, I pray for those people who haven't made a decision for Jesus, yet I ask, God, that you would just encourage them, that you would draw them to you, that they would see your son for who he is for the first time, hopefully, God, and just make a decision to follow after you. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's come and celebrate the victory of Jesus this morning, his sacrifice. Let's come to the table.